0: Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. Eurowatch. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is the Evening Runway. We're going to take a look at some headlines out of Europe. We have start off with uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's emergency bill. The plan is to revive this to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Um, it's avoided defeat in Parliament.
1: Well, the Prime Minister has pinned his reputation on the strategy despite warnings that it would not work. Uh, well, it won the first vote on the plan in the House of Commons 313 to 269 on Tuesday. But what's next
0: uh, yep yeah. what is next for rishi sunak as well on the line with us is dr samir puri associate fellow uk in the world program of uk foreign affairs think tank chatham house dr samir good afternoon it's been a while how are you i'm very well good to speak to you yes it's been a while let's start off with that uh, rishi sunak rwanda bill the bill was passed by 313 to
2: 269 your
0: thoughts did you see this coming mr sunak winning this bill
2: Well, it's still touch and go, I think. But this is a pretty tortured process to get this bill passed. And I think the issue has caused a lot of angst uh, within the UK's Tory party, but also within the British public. I think there's still a lot of bewilderment as to how on earth the UK has become linked to Rwanda with the issue of migrants. And I think that is one of the biggest Problems, But there's also the other problem within the Tory party is it's become a symbolic issue Mm. around how hard the party should be on this issue of of removing migrants from the UK. Well, obviously, people who are backing the bill want there to be really decisive action to reduce the number of of immigrants coming to the UK and settling. And those against it uh, just think this is... As I said, quite a crazy idea, because it still is quite a crazy idea when you think about it.
1: Well, Dr. Samir, let's just backtrack a little bit. In this day and age, though, do you think this is even realistic, a bill like this?
2: So the real issue is the ticking clock on the Conservative Party's time in office. So let's just say that against every possible obstacle, and passing one is, you know, obviously the vote in Parliament, but there's also the legality of this and the practicalities of this all, and then eventually even the media shaming within the UK if Mm -hmm. these flights ever take off. The the Tory party has got, what, a year or so before the election is likely to be called, at which point issues like this will actually become some of the substance of the opposition campaign against the Tory party. So even if it gets forward and and you move towards, like, a, a first flight to Rwanda for the UK putative UK migrants when would that happen Uh, you know Easter next year mid next year And it would almost certainly be killed off by incoming Labour government. Mm -hmm. So I just can't see this as being something that is is a lasting feature of UK immigration policy.
0: You know, Dr. Samir, I watch a lot of The Crown. And while I say that just for dramatic (laughs) effects, uh, this sort of sentiment really does create a bit of trouble for Downing Street. You mentioned potential incoming Labour government. And what is the point of even passing this bill to begin with? He's fighting for his political future then.
2: Yes, and there's a lot more, I think, critical analysis of Sunak's Time in office, yeah. coming out now because yeah. he's had enough time, you know, coming to a year or so. And I think one of the things that comes out, one of the criticisms I've noticed is say it says that Sunak is approached become, being prime minister much like he'd run a company, which is he's trying to achieve his objectives and move, you know, his objectives forward, but he doesn't seem to understand the power of ideology. And I think this is where the Rwanda bill comes through. There's a very ideological component inside the right wing of the Labour Party that's backing it. But much more generally, I think Rishi Sunak has sometimes had a little bit of difficulty connecting at a sort of more emotive level with Mm. voters. He can come across as a bit robotic. And back during the pandemic when he was the chancellor, he was nicknamed Mr. Spock in reference to Star Trek, and I think there's still a little bit of that lingering around him. Nonetheless, it was a good comparison and contrast to Boris Johnson, who was perhaps overly flamboyant, so a bit like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you kind of wish you had a middle ground between you know, the, two, the two extremes.
1: Okay, Doctor, let's move on and talk about COP28. Of course, it just wrapped up yesterday. What is the consensus like in Europe when it comes to what was achieved or not achieved at the summit?
2: Well, there is always a lingering suspicion amongst governments that are very committed to moving forward uh, with net zero that the biggest profiters in the oil industries in terms of countries will basically move on their own timescales to you know to basically derail the process so there's clearly going to be some angst that uh, when you move to the middle east with the cop discussions that the clear interest is to preserve oil profits and therefore any desire to phase out Fossil fuels ends up becoming a sort of a watered-down consensus around phasing them down. And that was always the, the semantic but you know, quite substantial difference, which was between phase-out and phase-down. So, you know, obviously in Europe there's no consensus around, you know, how quickly fossil fuels should be phased out. Like many parts of the world, there's just a lot of debates. But, you know, obviously in Europe the green lobby and those who are backing the climate you know, climate action through the green transition are very powerful, very strong voices. Uh, most European countries have got very strong voices in favor of phasing out fossil fuels. So, of course, there'll be a lot of angst around the way in which uh, the UAE has has managed this particular COP.
0: And you know, when it comes to this uh, whole movement where climate change is concerned, the UK tends to stand out and, and champion the way forward. But this time around, they don't seem very involved like previous years. The climate minister flying back uh, because of that Rwanda vote.
2: Uh, yes, well there has been quite, you know, some quite astute British political commentators, Rory Stewart being one of them, a the former MP himself. says so this is the whip system showing its sort of negative side, which is you bring back that minister because of this particular vote. His party will have instructed him through the whip process. Metaphorical whip, by the way, in case anyone's not familiar, <laughs> non not literal whip, to vote on this. But then, how does that make the UK look on the world stage? But I should also balance that by saying the you know, UK did host COP26 in Glasgow just a few years ago. And so, you know, the UK has had a very strong and prominent role in pushing forward. And of course, the UK government has committed to net zero by 2050, alongside European, US and and other governments and South Korea and Japan and quite a few others. And that's, that's, you know, it's it's the more ambitious end of the target, bearing in mind where China and India have, have sort of located themselves, the carbon neutrality, which is a lesser target because it doesn't cover all the greenhouse gas emissions. And their targets are, you know, further in the future. So the UK is still committed. But the difficulty, just the closing reflection on this, is always that 2050 is both near enough and far away to stimulate action, but also to do nothing. Mm. And so you've got a very, I think, I think, you know, contested space around urgency. Mm. And that yeah. will vary depending on the government of the day. And it clearly varies between countries as well.
1: Doctor, let's uh, move on to talk about the situation in Ukraine. The Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky, of course, in Washington, D.C., asking for more support, even though the U.S. has already hinted that it may not have any more uh, funds to support the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. So what's next for them?
2: Well, no one knows what's next for them because there is a huge uncertainty now around the scale and the reliability of US, in particular, security assistance to Ukraine. This is exactly what Putin was counting on, which mm-hmm. is that eventually there'll be voices within these Western countries that are in Ukraine that either run out of patience, that lose the political will, or other issues just take over. And there's a variety of things that have, I think, you know, taken over in, in the US debate. Clearly, within the Republican Party, Ukraine's become quite a support to Ukraine's become quite a toxic issue for for those who oppose Biden the most strenuously. And isn't it baffling that the deal that the Biden administration ended up having to do was to try to promise some action on the southern border of the U.S. against uh, in relation to immigrants coming in from Mexico? Uh, bundling that into a package in which they would take action against those immigrants on that southern border mm-hmm. in exchange for Republican compliance on, you know, passing more Ukraine spending. So how these two issues become packaged together, imagine Zelensky's advisors explain that to him, that their security assistance is now reliant on a deal that deals with, you know, the southern border of the USA. But this is also election year coming for the USA. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that has uh, brought Ukraine funding into question. In addition to the obvious point, which is Ukraine's counteroffensive, was a failure this year. And that was heavily, heavily funded by American security assistance. Last observation on this, as people backing continued American funding, say, voices within the U.S., they are pointing out that of these billions of dollars that are released, a lot of them stay within the U.S.A., Mm -hmm. that money, to to stimulate defense industry activity to produce the weapons that are then gifted to Ukraine. So there's strong voices on both sides, but as with any political debate, those nuances fall away, and it just becomes a case of winning, uh, winning the, the, the debate for, for point scoring.
0: All right, Doctor, just to dive into a little bit of uncharted territory, and as a disclaimer, we are speculating the potential outcomes uh, politically as well. Vladimir Zelensky is thinking, as far as his war is concerned, he wants a bit of attention on himself. He goes and sees Joe Biden. You mentioned in an election year, if, let's say, a certain Donald Trump goes back into office is ukraine putting a stopwatch on itself let's solve this within a year is the eu thinking we better solve this in a year otherwise we'll have new debates and different problems should the election go the other way
2: yeah i mean so many parts of the world people are sort of waiting with bated breath around how you know the u.s election will affect their part of the world but ukraine is probably one of the most exposed parts of the world outside of america to the possibility of Trump coming back in. he Trump says he'll solve this war, end this war on day one in office. Now, I mean, that's probably an exaggeration, but he obviously wants to do a deal with the Russians in which some sort of guarantee around Ukraine's neutrality means the fighting stops. What can the Ukrainians really do? They can't influence the outcome of the American you know, election, nor can they seem to be able to influence the battlefield at the moment. So of the two years, the nearly two years, since this full-scale Russian invasion has been going on, I'd say that the Ukrainians are probably the least empowered right now mm-hmm. than they have ever been, both militarily and rhetorically. Uh, just what chips do they really have? And the final one is they don't even have the, the chip of playing on people's heartstrings in the same way, because people have gotten used to the fact there's a war in Ukraine. And the, the situation in Gaza, with the Israeli you know, retaliation against Hamas after Hamas's attack, That has taken, I think, a lot of the sort of moral attention of the world away from Ukraine as well. So Ukrainians are actually quite disempowered at this very moment. Let's wait and see what what Mm. happens over the winter period, uh, because it could get worse for them if the Russian military unleashes even greater salvos of drones and cruise missiles against Ukraine cities during the winter months.
1: So where does this take us then in terms of the other side? Russian President Vladimir Putin, as you mentioned earlier, he was counting on this, people getting tired of this whole conflict. So what can he do
2: next or what will he do next? Well, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to remain as president since he has triumphantly declared he Mm -hmm. will be seeking re-election. That means he's in his early 70s. We could be seeing Putin, you know, remaining at the helm of Russia for, you know, probably the remainder of this decade, possibly even the start of the next decade. Yeah. What does he need to do? Well, he has started to travel internationally a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You remember when the invasion started, His he started the invasion, I should say, in early 22, he largely remained confined to Russia. He has been to the Middle East, as those sort of following the news in the last week or so will have noticed. And the big issue there from the sort of a economic perspective is, of course, OPEC+, Plus, which, in which Russia and Saudi Arabia collude to or attempt to control the, the world's oil supply from their side of the production. And I think the warmth of his, rea- his reception in, in Riyadh is, is really telling, that there's, there are world leaders out there that are fairly non-plus by the, the criticism and, and the evidence of his actions in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they're very happy to cut deals and, and look at Putin and Russia still as a power broker in, in some, some areas. Final issue to look at, Dr. Samir,
0: as uh, we welcome back Donald Tusk, the top job uh, prime minister now in Poland. There are a lot of issues to look at. I'm, I'm picking out the best one here. What does this mean for relationship with the Ukraine as well as the EU?
2: Ah, so we're onto the good Donald, if you're a, if a sort of a central <laughs> political persuasion. Yes. You're you not know, too much of an extremist. But, you know, so that, that's, the, that's the good Donald in terms of the, the, the liberal conception of, of global politics. So yeah. he's back in Poland. He, of course, you know, was in charge of the EU, uh, sort of, you know, in the capacity that he would be in charge of the EU. So he's a committed Europhile. He's absolutely committed to, I think, you know, unity of purpose within europe around sort of the, the big issues especially around defending ukraine one of the most important things he will do in poland is to try to reduce polish ukraine tensions which had actually built up over issues of trade there have been blockades of by polish truck drivers actually you know protesting uh, the influx of, of goods coming in from ukraine amongst other issues so they're, they're sort of tamping that down and making sure that ukraine and Pol- Poland's relations are, are restored to what they were. Beyond that, I suppose, on the EU perspective, although you've got a victory for Donald Tusk and the sort of pro-EU sentiment in the Netherlands, which, you know, I don't want to talk in depth about, with Gert Wilders, you've got another populist coming in. So I suppose if you were to paint a map of the EU, the number of pro-Brussels leaders versus the number of slightly Brussels-sceptical, anti-Brussels populists You know, light bulbs keep coming on and off in different countries. And I think that's the nature of the EU's politics, is that finding consensus uh, and unity of purpose is is extremely difficult, takes up an enormous amount of time, Mm. and is always often watered down. So Poland's back on side with the EU. But the Netherlands potentially might might be a bit more troublesome now. Yeah. So it, it, it's an inconsistent picture as always. By the way, they're, they're both not just Donald, they're both DT as far
0: as their uh, oh, yes, initials <laughs> are concerned. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking with Dr. Samir Puri, who is Associate Fellow UK in the World Programme of UK Foreign Affairs Think Tank, Chatham House. Thank you so much, Dr. Samir. Take care and have a, a great Thursday evening. Thanks very much. Great to speak to you. Bye-bye.